As we think about uh, counting our blessings, I appreciate the fact that Tommy chose that song in light of the subject today, that subject being God's groundwork in Genesis as we continue our, our theme, as we begin the year looking at the groundwork for God and for his existence in Genesis and for his goodness as we have, have seen. And logically flowing from that, his gratitude the gratitude that we are to show to God because of, of his goodness, our gratitude, not his, but our gratitude to him for that goodness that is manifested to us as we have already seen in the physical blessings that we enjoy and his creation. As we mentioned in this series of brief, uh, brief series of lessons already, we have seen that in creation there is a certain aspect of God's goodness that is clearly seen. When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. And do we often consider the moon and the stars? Well, of course we do. When we go out on a particularly clear night and we look heavenward, we are awed by the beauty of God's wonderful creation. That's good. There is goodness there. Paul reminds us in Acts 14, 17, a passage that we looked at earlier, nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. I'm glad to eat, aren't you? I'm glad for the food that we have. I'm glad for the blessings, physical blessings that we have. And so, yes, indeed, there is uh, something of the goodness of God that is that is seen in our physical blessings and gratitude should flow heavenward to God. And it often does from Christians who are mindful that they're not like the pig who ate the acorns and never looked up to see the tree from whence they came. Christians do look up, as it were. Christians do recognize the source of their physical blessings. But as we have pointed out last time, salvation is the greatest blessing that God has bestowed upon us. The spiritual blessings are the greatest blessings that we have. How is it that we show our gratitude for that salvation? How is it that God has ordained that we show our gratitude for the spiritual blessings that he has bestowed upon us, culminating in the giving of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ? The one-word answer to that, really, if you need a one-word answer, as to how we show that gratitude, that one word is worship. Worship. Worship is to be an expression, an outpouring of gratitude and praise to God for what God has done. Do we gain any benefit from it? Of course we do. We are edified. We are built up just as Paul admonished that we are to do in our singing as we're to admonish one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord, as we have done. And I appreciate Tommy so much and for his implementing so many of the things, even today, that we went over in our workshop. And I know I have trouble chewing gum and walking at the same time, so I tell you, when you're working with a pitch pipe and a changer and all of that, uh, but uh, Tommy did a splendid job. I, and we appreciate our song leaders here and those who were able to be at the, at the workshop 
And if you noticed on the screen before worship, we had a scripture there for singing. Remember how Burt Jones emphasized those scriptures? So we put one up today, and we'll put different ones up. And notice those and memorize those. And be here at 5 o'clock today if you can, if you're not on work team 4. And join us as we, as we work to continue to improve our praise to God. Because that is certainly an aspect of the expression of our gratitude to God. Because singing is a vital element of our worship to God. Singing unencumbered by mechanical instruments, which are, as Burke pointed out last Sunday morning so beautifully and scripturally, is unauthorized in Scripture. But we are specifically commanded to sing. We ought to do it with all of our hearts and to the very best of our abilities. We appreciate those who make that effort. But as we think about God's groundwork for gratitude in Genesis, and that one word definition of that gratitude as to how we express it, that word being worship. Let's go back to Genesis. And let's notice Genesis chapter 4. As we see the very first incident of worship in Scripture, an incident with which I am sure most, if not all of you, are very familiar. But I do not hesitate to put you in remembrance of these things as, as Peter wrote on one occasion to those to whom he penned the inspired epistles, and no preacher should ever apologize for putting us in remembrance of some fundamentals that we have studied in the past, but that we need to look at again. Repetition, repetition, repetition. Those are the three best uh, words uh, when it comes to learning, aren't they? Genesis 4 begins, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Then in subsequent verses, we see the insane jealousy, if you will, that Cain experienced because Abel's offering was accepted, his was rejected, and ultimately he killed his brother, murdered him out of that jealousy and that envy. What do we learn from this first incident, recorded incident of worship? It is not likely the first sacrifice that was made because we see that in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve fell into sin and God set in motion that scheme or plan of redemption, you remember that? When he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, it shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That was the first vague reference to the ultimate sacrifice that would be paid for the sins of mankind, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Calvary. But there were other sacrifices that led to that final sacrifice Sacrifices that could not absolutely take away sin, but that pointed to the need for the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And you remember 
that in Genesis 3.21, after Adam and Eve had made uh, aprons for themselves, fig leaves, that God, verse 21, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God, made tunics of skin and clothed them. He properly clothed them, but in so doing, there is an implication that those tunics of skin had to come from animals that were killed in order to take that skin. And the strong indication is that that was the first animal sacrifice that was offered in the patriarchal dispensation involving Adam and Eve and that first sacrifice. But when we come to the next chapter, we see specifically and without question the explicit statement, as we have just read, of the offering of Cain and Abel. And from it, from it we have a groundwork for gratitude that is absolutely unchanging, the groundwork. The principles that are established here are so vitally important to our worship to God today. Oh no, not the particular aspects because we all know, I hope, that we do not offer animal sacrifices today. But nonetheless, there are some eternal principles that are set forth here that man would do well to heed in his worship or his attempts to worship God today. Think about them with me. Cain's offering was rejected, and Abel's was accepted. Do we conclude that there was no gratitude at all on Cain's part as he offered the fruit of the ground, being a farmer? We cannot conclude that he was, in, uh, that he was ungrateful. We must assume that he was grateful. In fact, I think the evidence probably supports that more based upon his reaction to the rejection of his sacrifice. He seemed completely shocked and dismayed that his sacrifice was rejected. It's as though he fully anticipated God was going to accept his sacrifice. Well, I would get from that that he, he was sincere, quite likely, that he was offering the fruit of the ground and that he anticipated that because he was grateful and that because he was sincere and that because he offered that God was going to Accept it, but he did not. And he was shocked at that and angry at that, and his anger led to murder. But Abel's offering was accepted. And as you well know, I am sure there is a text in the New Testament that gives us very, very conclusive insight as to why Abel's offering was accepted. Hebrews 11 and verse 4. In Hebrews 11, verse 4, that great chapter on faith and faith's hall of fame and the heroes of the faith, the chapter has been called by various designations because it is filled, it is filled with the expression by faith and followed by verbs of action. In Abel's case, the expression by faith is followed by the verb offered. By faith, Abel offered. That takes us right back here to Genesis chapter 4. But what did he offer? Hebrews 11, 4 gives us insight. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Why was it more excellent? Because he was more sincere? No, we don't conclude that. In fact, the remainder of the verse would lead us to a far different conclusion. Notice it. Through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. Righteous meaning he was right. He did right. 
Now notice this phrase, God testifying of his attitude. Is that what your Bible says? No, God testifying of his gifts, of his gifts. What were the gifts that Cain offered, fruit of the ground? What was the gift that Abel offered? The firstling of his flock with the fat thereof. An animal sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. When you go back to Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. It shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And then he begins to unfold the scheme of redemption, which is a scarlet thread, as it were, running from that time until the cross. A scarlet thread, that is blood, 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 blood sacrifice, all the way through until the sinless blood of the Son of God is shed to absolutely take away the sins of those who live faithfully under the former dispensations and all who would live faithfully for all time to come. That was the burden of sin that Jesus bore upon his sinless shoulders in shedding his sinless blood. What was there in Cain's sacrifice that in any way, shape, form, or fashion typified that blood? The answer is nothing. Nothing. Nothing about blood in the fruit of the ground. God testifying of his gifts because it was in harmony with God's scheme of redemption through which mankind would have opportunity for salvation through blood, through blood. But where are we told that these men were told what to offer? There is no explicit statement. But as we pointed out in Bible class this morning, the Bible doesn't always give us explicit statements, but it, it assumes that we will discern and reason properly from the study of the Scripture that we engage in honestly and fully. And when we see that Abel offered by faith, and we read Romans 10, 17, which says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, if Abel offered by faith and faith comes by hearing the word of God, then Abel must have heard the word of God in order to be able to offer by faith. Therefore, we conclude God told these men what to offer. But there is some additional evidence to add to what we have just stated. Notice that Abel, verse 4 of Genesis 4, also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. Through the years, have those who've killed hogs and so forth ever, ever utilized the fat in any way? Now, I'm, I'm not a farmer and didn't grow up on a farm. I have been present at a couple of hog killings, and I've eaten sausage the next morning. That was the best sausage I ever ate in my life, come to think of it. But I don't know how to kill hogs, but I do know that Fat has been something that farmers, or certainly folks in the country, have used. They don't, they don't just throw it away, do they? No. But what then, therefore, would we have anticipated Abel doing with the fat, perhaps making good use of it? God said what? Well, it doesn't say God said that. It just says he offered the firstborn of his flock and their fat. My point is, I believe very strongly. I'm fully convicted that God told him to offer the firstling of his flock, and that he told him to offer the fat. Otherwise, why would Abel have done that? Why would he have thought to do that unless God had told him? Now, add this verse to that argument. 
Look at Leviticus chapter 3 and verse 16. In Leviticus 3, when we come to the codifying of the law of Moses, the giving of the law, and everything that's involved with the law of Moses, go to verse uh, 14 to gain the context and read through verse 16 of Leviticus 3. Then he shall offer from it his offering as an offering made by fire to the Lord. The fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, the two kidneys and the fat that is on them by the flanks, and the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys he shall remove, and the priest shall burn them on the altar as food, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma. All the fat is the Lord's. None of it is yours. All the fat is the Lord's. Now, when you see that specific command, and then you go back to Genesis 4, and you see that in verse 4, Abel offered the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, what would you logically conclude? You would logically conclude God told him to offer the fat, and that's why he did it. When you see that when God gives the law of Moses, he codifies that commandment in that law. The point being this, God was very specific about what he wanted offered to him out of gratitude for what he had done for man. And nothing has changed. God is still very specific. Today you can keep the fat. <laughs> you can keep the fat. The point is, you cannot add whatever you want to to this table when we observe the Lord's Supper because God specified in the new covenant the bread and the fruit of the vine, unleavened bread and fruit of the vine. You cannot add an orchestra here on this podium nor one single instrument on this podium. Why? Because this principle has never changed, and when we come to the New Testament, we are clearly commanded, just as Burt Jones pointed out, in every passage that he cited from the New Testament on singing and worship, there's not a single one that authorizes anything but singing. And sing is a specific term, isn't it? Music is general, generic. Sing is specific. Play is specific. God is specific. Why would we expect him to be anything but specific in a matter so vitally important as worship? The groundwork for which we see right here in Genesis 4. And Cain's offering, no matter how sincere, was rejected because he offered that which was unauthorized. Right after the passage we had on the screen in the announcements this morning, Colossians 3.16, Right after that passage, what do you find? Look at it again with me. Let the word of Christ, verse 16, dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. Well, Cain may have thought, well, I know he said an animal sacrifice, but I'm a farmer and I'm sincere and I'm going to give abundantly of the fruit of the ground to the Lord, 
and I'm going to do it sincerely and with all my heart. And I fully expect the Lord, I fully expect Him to accept that. And I believe He did fully expect God to accept it based on His reaction afterwards, but God did not. Why then do I come to that which was the culmination of everything God had in mind all along, long before the twilight age, which is the patriarchal, long before the mosaic age, which is called the moonlight age, but when we come into the full sunlight age, the New Testament, why do we expect God to change his principles about how man is to express his gratitude to him? Why would we anticipate that? When he says, sing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And then here's that next verse. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. There's our gratitude again. Do all in the what? In the name of the Lord. We know what it means. We've talked about it many times to do something in the name of of someone. Stop in the name of the law. That old expression means stop by the authority invested me in me as an officer of the law. Do all in the name of the Lord means to do it by the authority of the Lord. Therefore, if there's no authority in the New Testament, then I cannot presume to do it. Otherwise, I find myself on the same ground as Cain. Groundless. Groundless in terms of of what pleases God. That's true not only of singing, it's true of the Lord's Supper, it's true of prayer, it's true of giving, it's true of, of our Bible study, our preaching, our teaching of the Word of God. Those are the elements of worship that are authorized, no more, no less. And why would we anticipate God changing His mind in this, the sunlight age, and simply now saying, Forget how specific I was with Cain and Abel. You do whatever makes you happy. And if you have a talent to play the piano, then by all means use it in worship. If you can play the drums, if you can play guitar, then why shouldn't we use that talent? I'm all for using it in the secular realm, but not in the spiritual. Because God has told us specifically how it is he wants us to express our gratitude to him. You know, there's a passage in Exodus 12 that ties worship to gratitude in the institution of the Passover feast. You remember when the Passover was instituted and unleavened bread, no leavened bread shall be seen among you, verse 7 of Exodus 13. But back at verse or chapter 12, as they went up, as they went up out of the land of Egypt, and uh, the instructions were given as to how the Passover was to be observed in future generations. Notice this. He said, when a stranger, verse 48, just to gain a little more context, when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let them come near and keep it, and he shall be as a native of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. Again, showing specific nature of the feast of Passover. One law shall be for the native-born, one for the stranger who dwells among you. Now notice verse 50. 
Thus, all the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. So they did. So they did. They did exactly what they were told. They did not question, but they did what they were told. And what were they to tell their children when they ask about it? What were their children? Go back earlier to chapter 12, verse 26 of Exodus. And it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service, this Passover feast? Very specific, wasn't it, in terms of how it was to be observed and who could observe it. It shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service, that you shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. Now look at this statement. So the people bowed their heads and worshipped as they were reminded of what God had done in passing over their houses and sparing their firstborn the gratitude that they felt for that blessing caused them to bow their heads and worship. And how were they to worship? Not as we worship today in terms of the particulars, but the principle has never changed. And today, if we're to show our gratitude to God and have him be pleased with our expression of that gratitude, we must express it as he has commanded the groundwork for gratitude is right there in Genesis chapter 4 with that very first incident of recorded worship. The particulars are not the same, but the principle is eternal. And today, we engage in five acts of worship, no more, no less, as God in the New Testament has instructed us to do. And we do so with hearts overflowing with gratitude for the one who has loved us and given his only begotten son to die for us. But before you can express that gratitude in worship, you must express that gratitude by becoming a child of God and a follower of Christ. And that gratitude is expressed by a belief in Jesus as the Christ that leads you to repent of your sins, confess him as the Christ, and then to be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. Oh yes, most of the religious world denies that final step, but Jesus affirms it so clearly when he says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Have you done those things? If not, we plead with you to do so, so that you may leave here with a heart filled to overflowing with gratitude and express that gratitude from this day forward in scriptural worship to the God of heaven through your high priest and mediator, Jesus Christ. And if you've once known that joy, the joy that comes from expressing gratitude as God has directed, but your life no longer reflects that gratitude. And you're not living in a way that is in harmony with the will of God. We plead with you to come home as a wayward child to your first love, that once again your gratitude may be expressed in the very way that God directs and with which you know he will be pleased. As we stand to sing, will you come?